Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we are doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so we reviewed more bikes and other related gear in 2022 than we ever have before, and we've got a lot of really good stuff in store for 2023. But before we dive too deep into that, we wanted to take just a minute to reflect on the last year and a whole bunch of our favorite gear that we reviewed over the course of it. And so I sat down with Dylan Wood and Luke Coppa to chat about a bunch of our favorites. We touch on a number of bikes, some brakes, some suspension bits, and a whole lot more. And along the way, we kind of chat about the state of the bike industry in general, tease some stuff that we're going to be reviewing soon, and a whole bunch more. But before we get into that, I do want to take just a moment to encourage you to check out our upcoming Blister Summit, which will be this February 12th through 16th in our hometown of Crested Butte, Colorado. It's the world's only consumer-focused ski and snowboard demo event in the world, and it's going to be a ton of fun. I'm going to be there. You're going to be able to demo an incredible amount of really good gear from a huge list of companies that is growing every day, and you can check out the link in the show notes for the whole rundown on that. There are also going to be some great panel sessions with industry folks and athletes, a bunch of just hanging out and having apres drinks, and a whole lot more. Plus, you'll get to meet me, the rest of the Blister team, take some laps with all of us. It's going to be a blast. So check out that link in the show notes and come join us this February. And with that, let's get right to my rundown of the best gear of 2022 with Luke and Dylan. Well, Dylan, Luke, great to sit down and kind of try to do a little bit of a year-end recap here of some of the best stuff we got to spend time on this year and <laughs> glad we made it all work given our various respective travel mishaps of the last week or so. But uh, we're here on a call ready to do this and um, kind of got a pretty big list ahead of us on this doc here. So get into it pretty quick here. But one of the things that I was sort of reflecting on in prepping this list and thinking about what I wanted to talk about was just that it feels like, as we've been talking about for a while now, in a lot of ways, bike design is settling down a little bit. We're not seeing every bike coming out being three degrees slacker than the one it's replacing anymore, anything like that. And one of the things that I was kind of realizing as I thought about the bikes I'd been on this last year is that it seems like there's just an increasing number of bikes that are better refined and super well-rounded, but maybe not quite as many bikes that are trying to do something hyper-specialized and focus on one super specific niche. And I was trying to decide if I thought that was just the result of kind of happenstance and the stuff that I ended up reviewing this last year, or if I think that's really an overall trend of the market in general. And I think it's probably a little bit of both, but I had a little bit of a hard time coming up with this list than I did for the last year's version of this podcast, because in years past, there have been a handful of bikes that have really specifically stood out to me as being super good at a specific thing. And in some ways, it's kind of easier for a bike to stand out and really be excellent at something if it has this super specific targeted use case, rather than trying to be more well-rounded and versatile and so 
rode a lot of bikes that I think are super good bikes, but they didn't necessarily have the one standout thing that they jumped out as excelling at in the way things have in years past. And so I guess curious to hear if that thought mirrors any of your experiences at all or kind of that just sort of is more what happened to me more by happenstance, you think? Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. In When I was thinking about all of the bikes that I was on this year and which ones stood out to me the most, it it was the more versatile bikes that, you know, were, were, were good at what they're supposed to be good at, but also not really specialized that were standing out to me. Um, yeah, I, I still think there's room in, in the bike industry for for really specialized bikes. Like, you know, we're going to bring it up again. Cause I always talk about this bike when I'm on bikes and big ideas, apparently the Norco range, um, you know, really, really capable bike on the way down, but sacrifices were still to get there. I think that's totally fine. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I think, um, yeah, I think I'd agree. Yeah. I mean, it, like if I were, if I owned a bike company, I would definitely be making the generalist like pretty good all arounder bikes because they can work for way more people. But from our perspective, it's always an it's a funny dichotomy of like there are some really good bikes or products in general that do a lot of things really well and will frankly be the best or like a safe bet for a lot more people than the really specialized ones. But writing those reviews of the generalist bikes or products or whatever tends to be kind of challenging because you're tr- like you want to make it engaging and exciting and interesting. And being jack of all trades, master of none is just not inherently that exciting. And so like when something's really good at one particular thing, it just stands out more, even if it's not, even if it's only going to work for like one percent of the population um so yeah i I feel like i've i noticed that in in bikes and just like in in other categories as well um like i was we were just writing a ski review uh this morning and yesterday and yeah it's it's hard to get really amped up about a product that is yeah pretty good at everything not like stand out and um trying to keep it both accurate and interesting is always the struggle (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly what I was getting at. Probably said better than I did in my first go at it. But yeah, I mean, it felt like I spent a lot of time on some very good all-rounder bikes that aren't necessarily quite as exciting because they're just versatile and competent, but not outstanding at any one specific thing. But that said, I've got some stuff to talk about here. So to kick it off, and this is, I guess something in like chronological order for sort of my testing a little bit, but uh, the Orbea Rayon was one of the real standouts for me from last year. And it's their 160 millimeter travel enduro bike. But by the standards of that sort of class of bikes, it is notably a little more dialed back in its geometry, not crazy long or slack, very nimble, very maneuverable when you're going pretty fast on it. It's not a bike that's versatile so much in the sense that it's like a fully happy-go-lucky just mellow cruisy trail bike but when you are on something where you've got a little bit of pitch and some speed to make it run it is just especially quick and precise and it's not a bike like the range to bring it back to the one dylan just mentioned that's going to just bulldoze everything in its path readily but it is 
very, very easy to ride really dynamically and precisely and put it exactly where you want it and go very hard on it by riding precisely and well, but it facilitates that extremely well. And it was just a ton of fun. It, it's uh, one of the better quartering bikes that I rode this year, particularly kind of medium speed stuff when you are able to really just lay the bike over and try to push through it really hard. Uh, just very precise and super confidence inspiring on that kind of stuff. And uh, really kind of an interesting take on an enduro bike because it's not quite as stable, not quite as planted as most bikes in that category, but makes up for it by being more nimble and more precise. And for the right rider, I think that's a really compelling option. Yeah, that bike sounds super fun. And that's kind of what I think of in terms of like enduro race bikes that are designed for pro enduro racers. Like like the, the like, I feel like the weight placed on what bike a rider is on is always too great. But I can't help but think that like these people are so good that they don't need a super long slack bike and they'll actually benefit from a slightly quicker one. Um, but then again, like if you look at all the results, like my argument goes to shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the general thought totally makes sense, though. And if you're someone who wants a bike that's got the suspension and is long and stable enough that you can still go really fast on it capably, but want something that's just a bit more nimble and a bit quicker than most of the other bikes that you would say that about. It's a specifically good option for that. Dylan, how about you? What's first up on your list here? A very similar story, actually. It is the Revel Rail 29. Uh, This is a bike that kind of blurs the line between trail and enduro it's 155 mil travel in the rear and usually comes with a 160 fork but we tested it with a 170 uh, RockShox Zeb that pushed it maybe a little closer toward the enduro uh, category but not super hard and it was just a bike that was really really hard to get it out of its comfort zone Um, anything you threw at it it seemed like it handled really well it could be ridden really hard on you know rougher more technical faster trails but it was also a really good climber and felt like it wasn't super sluggish and it was pretty quick on like you know more more mellow trails and stuff like that um so yeah in in the world where we have a lot of enduro bikes that you know just kind of want to crush everything and you know that's great and I th- the rail does give up a little bit of performance there but you have to kind of be going really fast and has to be a really rough trail for you to, to to get there um but yeah the rail 29 is just a supremely versatile bike easy to set up easy to get along with and yeah one of the standouts this year for sure yeah that bike sounds really interesting and kind of from the chatting we've done about it i think it is probably similar to the rayon in certain respects particularly that it's a little quicker handling than a lot of the biggest longest enduro bikes my hunch is that it's probably a little quicker handling and maybe not quite as stable as the rayon based on how we've chatted about it before but we haven't had the same folks on those two bikes unfortunately so we don't have the direct ab comparison there but it does seem like a cool option for someone who wants something that's generally a pretty big bike but not uh 
full on super tanker sled kind of thing. So that one seems pretty neat. Yeah. Well, I guess speaking of quick handling bikes, Luke, you've got one on the list here. The main bike that stood out to me um, this past summer and fall was the Pivot Shadow Cat, um, which is their 27.5 wheeled short-ish travel trail bike. Um, but kind of like, I feel like the trail bike category, we're always adding caveats, whereas like that one travel-wise seems to be a trail bike. And I like mirroring what we talked about earlier, a lot of the bikes in the general trail category fall into that kind of like pretty good at everything maybe not the most exciting but predictable where and the shadow cat is that in a lot of ways but i was just kind of blown away by how nimble and i hate to use the word but playful it felt given how cohesive the overall ride still was like i kind of i kind of expected it to go one way or another like it's one of those fine at everything, not that exciting bikes, or it's like super quick, but it completely falls apart in any sort of rough or high speed terrain. And it's a little bit of both. Uh, and I just like, I am not a, I'm not a skilled enough rider to really take advantage of how nimble it is, but it made me more than any bike I've tried made me attempt to kind of shift my riding style in that direction and made it a lot easier while still being stable enough in some rougher, faster trails. Um, but yeah, I mean like my daily driver is a console meta TR, which is like the complete opposite in that category. Very heavy, uh, very planted, very stable at speed, which allows me to make up for lack of technique and just go through stuff. And the Shadow Cat is not that, but I still loved riding it, and it climbs extremely well. Um, yeah, overall, that was that was the standout bike of the year for me, uh, mostly because it is it was just quite different than most of the other bikes I've tried in that category without being some like one trick pony. Right, that makes a bunch of sense too. And how much of that? character do you think you'd attribute to the fact that it is a full 27 five inch wheeled bike versus just everything else is going on with it too in terms of well the whole rest of the design yeah it's tough to say um i feel like the differences between wheels get overstated um fairly often i i mean like pivot switchblade is very similar on paper to the shadow cat but it's full 29er in its standard setup. And the bikes share a lot in common. And I feel like most of the differences I noticed, I mean, some of it definitely came down to wheels because the Shadow Cat does feel significantly quicker in tight spots and slow speeds. Um, but I feel like more so than that, it was just the build options that Pivot offers. Like the Switchblade comes with a burlier shock, burlier fork, I think burlier tires. And as overall, it's like a few pounds heavier. And that seemed to be the bigger difference to me than purely wheel size. Like I, I, I mean, I used to ride my only bike a few years ago was full 27.5 specialized enduro, the old version. And I was like, when I got on the switchblade, it, it was the first full 27.5 bike in a little while. I was like, oh, I'm going to like hit a tiny rock and stop dead in my tracks or like, it's not going to be able to roll over anything. But, uh, that was, uh, not very true it would be it would be fun to try it 
like everything the same, but with 29 inch wheels. But uh, yeah, I, I, I can't offer a conclusive opinion there. Yeah, fair enough. And I think you are definitely right to say that the sort of differences between the wheel sizes tend to be overblown a bit, particularly in terms of how they roll over things. To me, the handling differences feel more significant than any of the kind of, yeah, rollover and bump stability kind of stuff that people talk about. And so that pretty much makes sense that you'd sort of be noticing that aspect of things a lot more. And it would be a quicker handling bike, but still a pretty competent, well-rounded one too, which seems like a pretty good place to be for a lot of people. And I think just a good reminder that a lot of folks who have maybe kind of forgotten about or written off 27.5 wheels should at least reconsider. There's plenty to like for them, for the right folks, depending on what you want to do with them. So I've been saying that for a while and still think that's definitely the case. So, well, to keep it moving here, um, a couple of the other bikes that I want to talk about that I'm going to kind of do in concert because the thing that I want to highlight sort of the suspension performance and they've got some similarities are the Cavins VHP 16 and the Canfield Jedi 29. And both of those bikes feel to me like really good examples of just sort of how the bike industry is figuring out high pivot suspension and how to package it into ways that are both able to combine the benefits in terms of square edge bump absorption and carrying speed through rough sections without doing as much weird quirky stuff when you're cornering or under braking and stuff and sort of it's kind of the case where you know high pivots are sort of a thing that are like what's old is new again we've revisited them after a hiatus and kind of just everything that's been learned about suspension kinematics and dynamics over the intervening 15 years has sort of gone into people figuring out how to make really well sorted out high pivot layouts there and both of those bikes are very very impressive in that regard specifically the cabins is interesting because it's a 160 travel enduro bike that has this really incredibly planted composed suspension but then the bike itself is a bit more compact and a bit quicker handling than you might expect for a bike that has the sort of suspension performance feel that it does but it despite that actually manages to feel pretty coherent still um it's probably not a bike that i would pick for myself personally just given overall preferences and whatnot but uh i think for someone who wants a bike that does an incredible job of being fairly plush and just planted and composed even on pretty small bumps while still not falling to pieces and being supportive and working really well when you're pushing it a whole lot harder too and combines that into a package that is more efficient and more versatile and a lot quicker handling than again to bring it up the norco range for example is a really uniquely interesting option there and uh, i got along super well with it personally i think if there was a version of it that was just a bit longer chain stays, a little bit slacker head tube angle, like a bigger, more stable version of it. That would probably be a little more compelling to me personally, given my preferences. But, you know, that's very subjective. And as is, it's a pretty cool option if you want something that's a little quicker than a lot of the really big planted enduro bikes while still having similar suspension performance and stuff like that. 
And then the Canfield Jedi 29 is a little bit of a similar story. It's another high pivot bike that does a really good job of being especially planted and composed in its suspension performance, but without being too quirky when it's handling, particularly some of the older iterations of the Jedi had just such dramatically rearward travel that it felt like the balance point shifted on the bike quite a bit as he loaded the suspension up into a corner and they were kind of hard to jump well because you'd preload the suspension coming up the bu- up the face of the jump and just the whole back end would flop out and you'd kind of have this weird balance change and it would feel like the back end would hang up a little bit as you unweighted the suspension as it kind of came off the lip and the new one's just feels like a Jedi in terms of how it plows through stuff, but has just been refined and mellowed out a little bit such that all of those other quirks are not a hundred percent gone, maybe, but very dramatically mitigated. And it's a, another really good option for someone who wants, in this case, a downhill bike that is really stable, has exceptionally good suspension performance, but isn't so long and so completely game on that you have to be going a thousand miles an hour on it at all times in order for it to feel like it works and just isn't a super tank thing that you have to manhandle around all over the place. And I don't, I mean, perhaps not coincidentally too, both of those bikes had EXT rear shocks on them, a Storia in the case of the Cavins and a, an Arma MX in the case of the Jedi. And, um, I think there's credit to be handed out all around there. Uh, Those bikes have just really well sorted out suspension kinematics. They've also got very, very good shocks on them and ones that were well-tuned for the bikes in question. And the overall package worked out very, very well in both cases. And they're both gorgeous. (laughs) That too. Yeah. Both really cool looking bikes especially in the raw aluminum versions. The Jedi I had to review was the orange paint, which looked pretty cool, but the uh, raw Jedi especially is outstanding. Definitely. Yeah, exciting time in the bike industry. It seems like we're having to make less sacrifices than than years past. Um, you know, like you were saying, if, if you wanted a high pivot bike 15 years ago, you definitely had to go along with a lot of the drawbacks, but it seems like those are getting very effectively mitigated without taking away a lot of what makes a high pivot bike good. And it felt like even not that long ago, like when high pivots were being reintroduced and it seems like folks were still kind of, kind of tinkering with things that like it seems like you could just classify a bike as a high pivot and kind of put it in its own category whereas now it seems like they're becoming more more mainstream and and versatile to the point that you know just calling it a high pivot doesn't seem to be telling the whole story anymore yeah i think that's right and uh we've got some more high pivot bike reviews coming up pretty soon here i'm actually going to be able to get on the Contra MC in just a couple days here and which I'm very excited about and we've got a deviate Claymore coming too so keeping it rolling and uh, more to come on those soon. Oh you're you're, you're testing bike packing <laughs> bikes right. now? <laughs> <laughs> yes the uh, yeah the deviate Claymore and the forbidden dreadnought the uh, two classic EWS bike packing <laughs> bikes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> People who don't 
get what we're joking about, uh, go check out the episodes of the show with Matthew yeah. Fairbrother and Eric Olson. We'll put a link in the show notes for those, but uh, those were wild, especially Matthew's. It's just totally preposterous. But yeah. <laughs> anyway, keep it moving here. I guess next, I think that's kind of the bikes we had written down, but we've got a couple pairs of brakes on the list here. So Dylan, I'll let you take it from here on that, your pair. So the brake that I'm going to talk about was mounted to the Revel Rail 29. It's the TRP DHR Evo. And this brake really stood out just from the lever feel. I really appreciated. Um, I, you know, I spent a lot of time on the SRAM code just because that happens to be a brake that comes on a lot of, you know, enduro aggressive trail bikes. And I don't really have many quarrels with the code other than it kind of feels mushy sometimes to me that I don't really appreciate. And I also like the Shimano uh, Trail XT four piston brake that is have tested on on a few like trail bikes as well. But I feel like that brake lacks in modulation at times. And I found that the TA, TRP DHR Evo kind of combined the best of both worlds in that it had a really nice, sharp lever feel. The contact point was always where you thought it would be. And it was really predictable in that sense. But it also had more modulation than that like you know, classic Shimano feel. Um, yeah, really just an excellent break overall. Had really good power across the board. And yeah, definitely something that I would consider mounting to to my personal bike if I were building a bike up. Yeah, I've ridden those very bit too. And I'm actually working on the full review for them right now. It'll be out very shortly. And pretty much agree with everything you just said. They're a big step up in power from every other TRP brake that I've tried to date and have pretty similar level feel to most of them. There's definitely kind of a family resemblance similarity to the Quadium and the Trail Evo and the Slate also are all pretty broadly similar in that regard. And the way I characterize it is that they're the lever feel like the, the bite point is relatively firm and tends to be consistent. Unlike Shimano XTs at times, but it's a more linear delivery than XTs in particular, where those feel like you have really light initial free stroke, and then you get to the bite point and everything happens all at once. And the TRPs do a really especially nice job of having a still a firm bite point, but building up that power a bit more linearly rather than having this big exponential kick to the curve kind of right when the bite point happens. And so uh, I think for folks who find the Shimano's in particular to be a little hard to modulate, uh, but still want a very powerful break, they're a good option. The one complaint that I have personally is that the reach adjustment range on the lever blade is super, super far out. You can basically go from farther out than I want to a lot farther out than that. And that's that's all there is available. Um, I do admittedly tend to run my brake levers very close to the bar. Um, just personal preference on that front. But um, the TRPs don't cater to that very well. TRP have told me that they're working on a shorter reach lever blade for those, but it's not out yet and not entirely clear if and when it will be. 
but they're considering it. I'm certainly not the first person who's made that complaint about them. So that would be my main point of caution is if you're someone who likes to run your brakes in really close to the bar, they're probably not the best option for that specifically, but they are otherwise really good brakes. Yeah, I feel like brakes have to be the most subjective thing on a bike. Um, the feel is like we talk about feel more, I think, in brakes than, than anything. Yeah, definitely personal, personal preference here. Yeah. And we've mentioned this before, but I'm working on a big brake roundup that's also going to be ready pretty soon here. And that's one of the things that's proving to be hardest as I go through that is that so much of the differences are in terms of what the lever feels like and just figuring out the language to explain that precisely and accurately is tricky. But um, we're getting there. That's coming along pretty well. It'll be out before too, too or pretty long here. I don't want to promise a specific date, but it's close. And so to keep the break discussion going, though, the pair that I want to shout out is the Hope Tech 4 V4s, their new iteration of their whole brake line. And the biggest thing for me on those is that the prior generation Tech 3 V4s were pretty good brakes in some ways, but uh, especially as bikes have moved to using a lot more 29 inch wheels on big gravity oriented bikes. They have started to feel pretty down on power. Um, bigger wheels kind of make for a less powerful brake in just the same way that going to a smaller rotor does. It's kind of the same ratio of leverage deal. And so both just with bikes getting better and people going faster on them and doing it on bigger wheels, it's just placing more demands on brakes than ever before. And the tech threes were pretty down on power by modern standards by the time they got retired. But the new tech fours are a massive, massive step up in that regard. And so they're another really good option for someone who wants a very powerful brake with pretty linear power delivery. A lot of the TRPs, the bite point on the hopes isn't, as firmly defined as the TRP is and the lever feel is significantly different in terms of the shape of the lever blade. The hopes are a bigger, thicker lever blade with a flatter face on it. So they're just a chunkier thing all around. And the TRPs are not super skinny, but they're a bit slimmed down from the hopes in particular. So there are some differences there and the hopes though have just been, they're kind of hard to bleed, just a little bit of an annoyance with them. But once you get that sorted out, uh, they've been super consistent. The power is spectacular. They're definitely stronger than the TRPs. And they're, I'm, I need to do just a little bit more aiming on them. They're probably the most powerful brake that I've tried to date full stop. The only possible contender would be the uh, Cascade Components North Fork Calipers on codes. But I think the hopes probably have a slight edge there even. And they're definitely ahead of anything that Shimano makes, TRP, McGur MT7s, codes, etc. So um, they're stout. And not that this is the most important criteria with a break, but they also look really, really good. They've just got some sweet machining. And, uh, they, you know, as per usual for Hope, they're all CNC'd and uh, done in their factory in the UK and look really sharp so it's a nice bonus but uh they also work super super well i've been a big fan of those and um 
full review of those is up on the site and we'll be discussing them in the aforementioned break roundup a bit too so uh, a lot more coming on that front well i think that kind of wraps up the list of breaks that we wanted to talk about so to kind of move on to some other components dylan what do you got yeah i spent a lot of time in 2022 on a component that beforehand i didn't think i needed but now it's something that I'm kind of picky about. And when I go to a bike that doesn't have it, I'm a little upset, um, but not a whole lot. But it is the SRAM GX Axis system, uh, the derailleur and shifter. I really appreciated how you can fine tune each gear using the GX Axis to get your whole cassette range shifting really smoothly and, you know, not needing to rely on a cable and a barrel adjuster to, you know, affect the entire range. Basically, um, if you have one gear that's shifting kind of weird, um, really like the you know precision above the shifting, um, not a huge fan of the shifter paddle on the axis. And I know that's something that David was talking about not being a fan of as well. So I'll swap that out with the new rocker paddle that's like a $30 upgrade and it's totally worth it especially if you're swapping from a bike that has a traditional SRAM eagle shifter to the axis shifter it's just a whole lot more more natural um even had some friends set up the GX axis on a Shimano cassette and chain and while I've yet to try that I I do appreciate how the 12 speed Shimano cassette and chain shift a little bit more than the SRAM Eagle. And luckily the spacing between those gears is the same, but GX axis allows you to, to fine tune that as you need to. So might try that next year and, and chime in on, on how it works. But yeah, big fan of the GX axis that came on the Santa Cruz mega tower that we bought and have been holding on to as kind of like a parts testing platform and, I hope I don't have to test any drivetrain on that because I really like the GX axis and would like to keep it on there. Yeah, I've been super impressed with the axis shifting as well. And like you kind of came in a little skeptical, just wasn't sold that adding electronics and having to charge batteries and stuff was going to be really all that worthwhile. But it shifts super well. You're totally right that it is just in a lot of ways, actually easier to live with than a cable system. You do have to charge the batteries, obviously, but in my experience, it stays in adjustment better. It's easier to adjust. And yeah, mostly you just have to do less of it to keep things shifting really nicely. Um, so, and I've been really impressed with the GX iteration of Axis too. I, on the mechanical versions, the X01 shifts noticeably better than GX does. But in the Axis configurations, I think if I did both back to back, I'd be really hard pressed to tell a difference. Obviously it's sort of because you have a, an electronic shifter, you don't have the same mechanical feel that you get from a conventional cable actuated shifter and don't have that added variable to work out, but they both work great. And apart from being a bit heavier, the GX stuff really works super, super well. So also have been very impressed. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you there. Yeah. I, I'm, I tend to be a, bigger fan of X01 uh, shifter and, and derailleur in the um, analog configurations, I guess. Um, but yeah, with Axis, I'm totally happy with, with GX. And yeah, it's pricey and you, you have to think about charging the battery. There's been a few times I've been on a ride and 
seeing red light on the derailleur and be like, oh, I guess I haven't charged my derailleur in like two weeks. Hopefully I'll be all right. Um, and I actually have figured out that there's been a couple instances where I forgot to a lock for my bike or something. I need to leave it somewhere for a second. I'll just put it in the highest gear and just take the battery off. So if someone tries to steal it, though, they'll uh, maybe have a hard time getting away. But yeah. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. It's been impressive and a more compelling thing that I maybe expected it to be going in. So um, shout out to Strand for that one. And I guess to keep going with the SRAM group accolades, uh, I wanted to shout out the new Charger 3 equipped Zeb as being one of the more standout products that I got on this year. Uh, And I've been a big proponent of the new crop of extra burly single crowns in general. I felt like that's a thing that the market needed. Arguably, maybe would have liked to see uh, lightweight dual crowns for enduro bikes popping up in their stead, but that's a separate question we don't need to open that can of worms too much right now but uh i didn't love the first iteration of the zeb uh primarily because i felt like the air spring was really badly lacking in mid-stroke support and so on a bike that i'm generally riding on pretty steep descents and things where you're just over the front wheel and putting a lot of weight into it it didn't do the job that i wanted it to of keeping me up on the travel and keeping the bike balanced and uh so experimented with a bunch of aftermarket upgrades on that first iteration of the zeb both the four-sprung Seekus and smash pot which helped out on the support front but took some work to get the first iteration of it where i was happy but i'm very pleased to say that the new iteration of the zeb is a huge improvement on that front in particular uh the chassis is still great i think it's the stiffest single crown out there apart from maybe a couple of the really weird exotic things that i've not tried but it's a tick ahead of the fox 38 or the owens rxf 38 which i do also like a whole lot um but the mid-stroke support is a ton better uh it's hard to know how much to credit the revised air spring itself the new damper or the little buttercup isolators that they put into the bottom of both legs but the new version of the zeb does a notably good job of just muting small chatter and it just feels smooth and less fatiguing and um i like the new damper quite a bit too i think that it's probably a less substantial upgrade over the older charger 2.1 than the spring side updates are but uh the new forks just better rounded better supported better small bump sensitivity to go with it. And I've been a very, very big fan of that. And I guess actually along those lines too, the Pike that shares a lot of the same design updates, the new version of that's also been super impressive. I wrote a bunch about that in the review of the Santa Cruz tall boy that we just published. And we've got a full review of the Zeb up and um, they've both been super, super impressive. So it was cool to see rock shocks kind of making the exact updates that I wanted to see in that line. And, they they nailed it the new ones are very very good if only the whole bike industry could accommodate for david golay and the way that that rock shots everyone needs to listen to me and then things would be better (laughs) luke how about you anything else on your list things to round up here one stand-up product not not attached to the bike uh but so i run i've run flat pedal shoes for most of my biking career um i just like them and i've gotten used to them but 
historically, it seems like clipless shoes tend to get all the fancy new tech. And sometimes that fancy new tech is not all that useful, but usually certain things are. Um, and flat pedal shoes have historically basically looked like kind of skate style shoes and the skate style shoes that no one wears anymore. Like skate shoes themselves have moved far past what flat pedal bike shoes look like these days. But anyway, uh, a shoe that I was really excited about when I saw it come out was the Ride Concepts Talak Boa. So it's a flat pedal shoe with a boa dial um, and a, a Velcro Velcro closure as well. Got some pretty high-end Cordura mesh for the upper. It's got a big uh, toe rand for protection and their grippiest rubber compound in a totally different tread design. Um, so lots of updates. I had, I've previously gotten along really well with Ride Concept shoes, particularly the Powerline. Um, I think they are they, they have a really nice combo of being grippy enough and I have like pretty specific preferences in that regard. If a shoe is not grippy enough, I will stop wearing it very quickly because I hate my feet bouncing off the pedals. Um, but they're not so grippy and muted that they make it impossible to shift your feet around because apparently I'm terrible at putting my feet on the right place the first time around. So I end up doing that a lot. And uh, yeah, so it combined my current favorite rubber compound with... Uh, a new tread that is much better in terms of off the bike traction than any of their other models I'd use because they have some concave <laughs> lugs at the toe and heel, um, basically like you'd see on like a trail running shoe or something. So when you are kind of like hiking up a steep hill or hiking down one, you actually get some purchase from the ends of the shoe. And then underfoot, it's kind of like a more typical flat pedal shoe tread that gives a bunch of traction uh, on the pins. And then the BOA system, I was mostly curious about that. I'd heard mixed reports from, uh, from various people about BOA, and it did take me some time to get used to figuring out how much tension um, I really needed to feel secure without it being too tight. But once I did, I came to love that um, in large part simply because they're really easy to take off. Uh, I like certain shoes with regular laces. I have to like cinch down like crazy. And then especially if they're wet or something like getting them off. I mean, it, it takes all of, like a minute, but with the BOA system, it takes all of, like five seconds. And then on top of that all it's the, I really like the upper for, especially riding around Crested Butte, like it breathes pretty well. Um, but it's also like pretty rugged. It definitely breathes better than like the shoes that are like a full synthetic or full, full, full synthetic leather or full leather upper. Um, but it's held up great. seems pretty rugged. And then the midsole strikes a good balance for me of being stiff enough, but not so stiff that I can't feel anything. Um, so all, all in all, it's probably my favorite flat pedal shoe to date. Um, it is very pricey. That's one of the, one of the benefits of flat pedal shoes that it doesn't really share is all those features cost some money, but, uh, yeah, I was a big fan of it. Yeah. And I've liked the clip lace up version of the Talat quite a bit too. Uh, and I think particularly what you noted of it being one of the better shoes, a sort of a gravity ish oriented shoe to walk in, particularly on loose dirt, just the treads really well laid out to have, spiky or grippier tread underneath the toe and heel while still having a flatter tread that feels nice on the pedal 
in the middle where you're doing that contact and that part's particularly well sorted out. So, uh, yeah, those are quite nice and similarly been a fan. Yeah. I'm a big fan of boa and shoes, boa in general. I've, I've broken one and on a pair of shoes that I had for like three years, but then I was able to quickly get it fixed here locally in Gunnison took like a day. So big fan. Right on Dylan, anything else on your list? Yeah. So I've always, so I'm, I'm a, I'm a big fan of tire inserts, especially on more aggressive trail and enduro bikes. And historically I've always gone to Kush core for that. But this year we tested the Rimpact pro tire insert. And right off the bat, before I put it in the bike, I weighed it and it's about a hundred grams lighter than Kush core per insert. And I know a hundred grams isn't a big deal. And, you know, there are discrepancies in tire weight and you can even, you know, depending on how much sealant you put in your, in your tire, you could, you could get some quite a bit of grant extra grams in there as well. But I'm pickier about weight when it comes to rotational weight, especially on something you're pedaling uphill and, you know, quick acceleration is something that you want to get out of the bike. And so I put the Rimpack Pros in the Rebel Rail 29 and didn't have any flats. Uh, sidewall support felt really good while it also let the tire deform in, you know, some more positive ways and didn't totally lock up the tire. And I honestly didn't notice very much performance decrease at all over Kush Core. It basically uses like two different density foams and sort of has progression in that sense um yeah closed cell foam so you know not something that's gonna suck up all your sealant though i will say it did seem like it got a little saturated with sealant uh which was which was kind of interesting um but yeah for 100 grams lighter than kush core um and really not that much sacrifices in performance i think it's a a great option for folks if weight is a bit more of a priority like something you put in a trail bike or you know an enduro bike that you'll be pedaling a lot and i think kush corp still has a little bit of an edge for just like smashing at the bike park and and stuff like that Um, but overall i thought it was a an excellent product yeah that sounds compelling what was the degree of difficulty on installation like as compared to kush about the same i'd say um yeah i've i've done it so many times now that i feel like i'm pretty good at it and it's not terribly difficult though i still do get some like arm pump from <laughs> from uh installing kush core and back when i would race i would like <clears throat> sometimes accidentally just pump my arms out before my race run just like installing kush core in a tire or something um but i'd say it's it's similar to kush core like if you do it the right way, um, you know, put some soapy water on the inside of your tire and use a big old tire lever and, and stuff like that. And, you know, drop the bead to the inner part of your tire rim. I, I think it's pretty simple. And, yeah, and that all can, can do it. checks out. And I do generally think that the horror stories of Kush Core installation are. It's if you don't do it right it is super hard but there is a technique that works pretty well and kind of once you figure out what you're doing and how to do it it's really not too bad so if it's no worse than that the key with kush core is for me to put the insert on the wheel first then start putting the tire on 
and just be really careful to shove the bead all the way underneath the insert into the center channel of the rim. And as long as you get that deep down in there, it tends to go pretty easily and uh, isn't too big a deal. So rim pack similar, 100 grams lighter. That's solid. And that's a big percentage of the weight because a Kushcore Pro inserts like 250 grams or thereabouts. So maybe not the hugest amount of weight in the grand scheme of things, but percentage-wise, it's a big one. And uh, like you said, rotating weight at the outside of the wheels kind of the most impactful place to be trying to save any so that sounds pretty good i might have to give a set of those a go as well well i guess to sort of round this out the last thing that i really wanted to touch on were the new continental downhill tires particularly the cryptotal front and rear pair um, i've been testing a number of different iterations of their new tire lineup and I would say that sort of the biggest limitation of them is that the softest rubber compound that they offer, the what they call it super soft, uh, is only available on the DH casing tires that they make what they call a trail and an enduro casing as well. But those all get firmer rubber. Um, and it'd be nice to see them start to offer the super soft and at least the enduro casings, uh, particularly because their super soft feels a small notch firmer than some of the other really sticky rubber compounds out there, like Maxxis's 3C Max Grip or uh, Schwalb Addicts Ultra Soft. But that said, uh, the DH casing tires are not that horrendously heavy. They're coming in just under or right around 1300 grams for a 29 or 2.4. So not light, but um, kind of between Maxxis's double down and DH casings weight wise. And I've been running them pretty happily on a number of different enduro bikes. And uh, the Cryptotal front and rear pair in particular has been very, very impressive. I think the rear looks a little bit like a Minion DHR2, but with slightly taller more open knobs and so it works a little bit better in softer looser dirt than the dhr2 does and clears mud and such a little bit better um, but what's interesting is that despite that it actually rolls faster than i might have expected the front edge of the knobs is ramped significantly which probably helps there but uh it's largely reminiscent of a slightly faster rolling slightly softer conditions oriented version of the dhr2 which is pretty solid but then the front has been kind of the particular star of the show for me so visually it looks sort of like a maxis asagai in that it's got sort of some offset rows of knobs with partial transition knobs kind of at the outside of them but in contrast to the asagai the channel between the center knobs and the side knobs is opened up a little bit more and so the thing that i sometimes in some conditions don't love about the asagai is that it can feel a little bit like you don't ever have a fully opened up section to just really really dig the center knobs in as hard and the upside of that is that it does have more consistent grip across a whole range of lean angles than something like uh minion dhf does where you have this big gap that you really have to commit to leaning the bike over to get the front to bite in and the cryptotal front sort of feels like it splits the difference between those two ends of the spectrum in a way that feels like a really good balance to me it also is one of the best braking tires that i've 
ridden in recent memory. Uh, and so that's been great and generally pretty high on those, especially if you're not riding somewhere where dealing with a ton of wet routes is a consideration. Um, the not super duper soft rubber does feel a little bit less confidence inspiring on off camera wet routes and that kind of stuff in particular, as compared to a bunch of Maxis like DHF or a NASA guy within free C max grip, but overall really, really good tires and the downhill casing, in addition to not being all that horribly heavy for what it is, uh, also is rides particularly well a lot of downhill casing tires can feel pretty stiff and kind of wooden if you're not hitting stuff really hard with them and the contis have been holding up great i haven't pin flighted one of them yet they're solid but just a little more supple and ride a little bit better than a lot of the other dh casings out there so um it'd be nice to see them offering that softer rubber in some of the lighter constructions but i'm pretty happy running the dh casings on enduro bikes too so those have been working out really well for me. We'll have a review of both the Cryptitals and the softer condition-oriented kind of spikier Arcatol up in a little bit. I need to get some more time on the Arcatol particularly, but uh, that's in the pipeline and those are working out really well. Though the one other caveat I throw in with those is that the DH constructions of those in particular are pretty tough to mount in my experience, I've tried them on a number of different wheels, and I think it's down to a combination of the bead just being a little bit tighter than average and also the bead being pretty big diameter and thick. And so on a specifically on the NVAM30 rims, which have a fairly narrow center channel, I straight up wasn't able to mount them because basically you get the first bead into the into the channel and then there's just not enough room in the channel to get a second bead into it next to it. And so between that and the bead being tight, um, it, it works if you take the valve stem out, but then as soon as you get the valve stem in and that's pushing the bead out a little bit, the combination of that room and extra tightness, I just genuinely couldn't get them to mount. They've gone on to every other wheel that I've tried them on and it's been a solid handful. So it's sort of a, that one instance was one of like a particularly bad combination for them, but they are tricky to mount in general. So I guess a slight word of caution there, but uh, otherwise been super happy with the performance. That's good to hear. Yeah, I always find, I love the DHF and I love the Asagai, but I do find myself sometimes wishing for something that was a little bit more you know, precise than the Asagai, but maybe a little bit more forgiving than the DHF. And sounds like that might be it. So I kind of want to give those a try. We'll get you on a set. They've been very impressive. So we'll make that happen. Awesome. Well, guys, I think that's a wrap for this one. Appreciate you taking the time to chat and run through some of the highlights of our last year. And here's to 2023 and getting on a whole lot more interesting stuff. We've got some very exciting things in the pipeline. So uh, it'll be great to keep things rolling and talk to you soon. Sweet. Yeah. Happy New Year. We'll see what next year brings. All right, that's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And I would, as always, like to encourage you to leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts to help keep the show going and growing. I also want to say thanks to Luke and Dylan for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing the episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we'll talk to you again next week. Bye, everybody.